Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. Now, if your knowledge is up to snuff on ACLS algorithms, you know for a fact that amiodarone should be given for refractory VTAC. 300 milligrams IV or IO once that second defibrillation doesn't work if they're dead, and 150 IV if they're alive. Now, you could use lidocaine, too. I mean, these drugs, without question, can stabilize myocardium, improve ROSC, and lead to better survival and better patient outcomes, right? Well, let's take a look at some of the recent evidence in the form of a meta-analysis and a randomized control trial published this last spring and early summer. And we're going to take a little bit of a side journey into the treatment of patients with stable VTAC. And before we get into this, I'll encourage you, if you're listening through iTunes or other means, go ahead and head on over to TamingTheShrew.com for our written breakdown, links to the articles, and our links to other FOMED resources on this particular topic. Now, there's a wealth of information out there on this particular subject, and all of it is good reading. Now, I wish I could say that the papers we're going to cover definitively answer the question of do antiarrhythmia medications help in patients with refractory VTAC? And alas, as is so often the case, we're going to leave this discussion with some answers, sure, but maybe more questions than we would have hoped. So let's dive into our first paper, the Procamio trial. Helping us walk through this discussion is Dr. Alep Shaw and Dr. Julie Teuber, who led our most recent journal club. Alep and Julie, break down this paper for us. What are we looking at with the Procamio trial? Hey everybody, how's it going? So this paper we're going to talk about is the uh, Procamia study. This was just published a few months ago, uh, June 2016, in the European Heart Journal. Uh, basically, they looked at uh, treatment of stable wide complex tachycardia, uh, which they defined pretty rigidly in the study, which we'll talk about. Um, essentially, it was a randomized, open-label, prospective, multi-center clinical trial, which compared IV procanamide versus IV amiodarone for treatment of stable wide complex tachycardia. And this was a study that was done in Spain. I heard a lot of those words that you want to hear when you're looking at a paper. Yeah, definitely. So the study was set up pretty well, um, as you can tell by those kind of keywords uh, that you heard. So what do they do? Um, they define what qualified as a stable wide complex tachycardia, uh, most of the outlines that you would expect. So wide QRS greater than 120, fast rate, absence of things that would make it unstable in our minds. Um, they then treated these people either with IV procainamide, uh, 10 milligrams per kilogram, over 20 minutes, or IV amiodarone, 5 milligrams per kilogram, also over 20 minutes. They then set up a study period, which was 40 minutes from the start of the infusion of the drug, um, and an observation period, which lasts a bit longer, 24 hours from the drug. Okay, so pretty straightforward. What did they find? So they looked at a couple different endpoints. Um, the one primary endpoint uh, was major adverse cardiac events over the study period. Um, then they also had two secondary endpoints. Uh, which was up, which was termination of the tachycardia during that first 40 minutes of the study period, as well as major adverse cardiac events over the 24 hours of observation. And would they find then? Um, so for the primary endpoint, which was the major adverse cardiac events in the first 40 minutes, uh, they actually found that in 41% of the amiodarone group versus only 9% of the procainamide group um, experienced these. So there's a significant benefit for procainamide, according to them. Wow, that's a pretty big difference. Yeah, and that was all statistically significant as well. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more. For the uh, termination of the tachycardia, um, that was a secondary endpoint. Procainamide also came out on top uh, with 67% success versus 38% in the amiodarone group. Um, they also found that was also statistically significant. Their last secondary endpoint, which was, uh, in, which was major adverse cardiac events over the course of 24 hours, uh, trended toward benefit with procainamide. Uh, as well, 18% versus 31%, um, but that was not statistically significant. Okay, so not a big surprise there. I'm not sure we're um, as interested in the 24-hour outcomes here. Yeah, I kind of agree. They didn't really talk about how these people were treated as inpatient or any of the other medications that they might have been on, Um, so I'm not sure what to do with that uh, 24-hour number. 
So how about their methods? How do they determine all of these things? So in my opinion, they had a pretty good job with that. Um, they had pretty rigid guidelines for what made up a wide complex tachycardia. Um, they talked about what made them stable versus unstable. Um, they actually even had blind cardiologists review the initial EKGs afterwards uh, to confirm whether they were VTAC and found that there was a similar rate of VTAC in both groups. Um, and then they had some very uh, rigid guidelines regarding monitoring uh, repeat EKGs every 10 minutes, etc. cetera, uh, during the study period. Um, as far as the endpoints themselves, they did originally define the major adverse cardiac events, um, which was pretty much the things we care about as far as this paper is concerned. Um, so kind of going through them one by one, um, the first uh, adverse event was signs of peripheral hypoperfusion. This is probably the re- least well-defined dis- uh, one out of all of them, um, but essentially it was up to clinician uh, to determine who was hypoperfused. Uh, then the second one was signs of heart failure, which they went further to describe as dyspnea, arrest, or orthopnea, signs of pulmonary congestion, um, etc. Um, severe hypotension, which they defined as systolic blood pressure less than 70 if the pretreatment pressure was less than 100, or systolic blood pressure of less than 80 if the pretreatment systolic pressure was greater than 100. Uh, acceleration of the tachycardia greater than 20 beats per minute. Um, and appearance of uh, polymorphic VTAC, which we would hope would pull them out of this trial. So I'm surprised. This seems like a huge win for procanamide. Is this what we should be using from here on? So not so fast. There, unfortunately, were a lot of issues with this paper that we need to talk about as well. So we can't just call it a day then? Uh, unfortunately not. So what are the issues? So the biggest issue that uh, was brought up was the uh, sample size. And uh, in this paper, they only ended up studying 62 patients. Um, it was done over six years. They actually had to uh, stop the study early. Their power calculations required a, about 300 patients would be needed uh, to show their benefit, um, but they weren't able to enroll that many. Yeah, that's a huge difference. You know, it's probably just an indicator of how little we see the stable VTAC. I think in our group during Journal Club, we had an end of a total of about three. Um, regardless, it is important because it means that the percentage differences in each group, while they seem large, uh, only reflect a few patients. Um, for example, in the termination of tachycardia endpoint, which is the secondary endpoint, uh, there was only a difference of 11 patients despite the wide range of percentage points. Sure, but is that statistically significant? Yeah, it was. Um, so we can talk about that a little bit later, but I uh, want to take a closer look at these endpoints. Sure. Uh, now, the primary endpoint was major cardiac events in 40 minutes. Clear win for the percanamide, right? Yeah. According to the study, it does look like that. But uh, did you notice anything funky about the dosing for these drugs? Yeah, it seems like a pretty big dose of amiodarone. Yeah, so definitely. They, they used 5 milligrams per kilogram, which for your average 70 kilogram person will come up to about 350 milligrams, uh, which is quite a lot of amio. Yeah, and they gave it over 20 minutes. Yeah, definitely. So for comparison, ACLS recommends starting with 150 milligram load. This is in your alive patients. Uh, It gets even more interesting when you look at the breakdown for what the events in the adverse group were, um, because primarily you saw a lot of hypotension, which makes sense when you look at the dosing. Well, what about the procanamide then? How does the dosing compare? So procanamide, interestingly, was dosed kind of on the lower end. Um, The recommended dosing according to ACLS, uh, according to them, is... 15 to 18 milligrams per kilogram, um, and ACLS recommends them. They justify this a couple ways. They cited doses that were given in previous studies, uh, which is how they kind of came up with their dosing regimen, um, although there seems to be a wide variance in the previous literature. Yeah, it still makes me a little bit skeptical. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a little bit suspect in my mind. Um, They claim in the discussion that, you know, with the high dose of 
Amio probably doesn't matter because the although they had higher adverse events, they also had a decreased conversion rate, um, and you would expect that the two maybe go hand in hand. Although we know that this isn't necessarily how drugs work. So what about the conversion rate? Surely you can't fake that. Uh, yeah. So the results here are definitely interesting, but. But there are a couple things worth addressing. First, there's not a ton of differences in dem- demographics, um, but there were a few that kind of stood out. Um, there was a table one in the paper, which you have, if you have in front of you, you could take a look at. Um, you see that mostly the demographics are pretty well matched, um, but there were uh, four patients in the procainamide group that got adenosine first, uh, while none in the amiodarone group got adenosine. That is strange. Makes you wonder if there's something about those patients that seemed like they weren't in VTAC. Yeah, it's unclear. They didn't really talk about that much in the data. Um, but it does make you wonder if something in those patients' presentation was concerning for an alternate cause. Um, and kind of go along those lines, there was also five patients in the amio group who were already on oral amiodarone compared to none in the procainamide group. And uh, that kind of raises a concern for the open-label part of the study, which otherwise isn't really a big deal. Would that result make me wonder if blinding would have helped or made uh, those a little bit more even? Also, did those people just kind of end up with a large dose of amio in their system? We don't know how much they were taking at home and things like that. Or would they just be more likely to have refractory arrhythmia? Yeah, that's definitely a good point as well. Um, and then there's always a the sample size issue as well. True. What about that last endpoint, follow-up over 24 hours? Yeah, so we sort of talked about that, and I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, they definitely did have a trend towards better outcomes with procainamide over this period as well, but obviously it was not significant. Um, and the negative events during that period were also mainly hypotension. Yeah, I'm not sure you can chalk up to adverse events over 24 hours to that initial treatment. They don't even talk about controlling the treatment during this period. They could be on any number of different medications. Yeah, they don't break down the events by time either, which would be helpful, I think. So, I, you know, you have no idea how far out these occurred. It's important to note that they did do a subgroup analysis as a separate part of the patient, or as a separate part of this paper, um, where they looked at patients with structural heart disease. Um, and they found that procainamide also came out on top for those patients. Yeah, I can't really see the point in doing a subgroup analysis in an already underpowered group. I mean, as you would expect, most of these patients do have structural heart disease. Yeah, I mean, they essentially threw out 13 patients out of their total group and reran the numbers and still got essentially the same results. So I didn't think there was anything too earth-shattering there. So what do you think about this paper now, Julie? Are you going to go reach in for procainamide first when you see these patients? Well, maybe. Uh, There's definitely a lot of issues with the paper, but I still think it's interesting. Definitely not what I expected. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think we all get drilled in our heads to think about using amiodarone first, and it's what a lot of providers reach for uh, right away. But uh, it's actually a pretty ugly drug in and of itself. Uh, aside from the problems we talked about, you know, this paper actually showed benefit to procainamide, which I was not expecting. Um, and I take that to mean it's probably at least not worse than amiodarone. Um, to be honest, I never really thought about using procainamide before, and so I might be thinking about using it in my arsenal now. Well, although they still have a fair adverse event rate, I might just be reaching for the automate and electricity instead. Yeah, definitely a good point. I think a lot of providers will probably go uh, agree with you on that. Um, I think for all these patients, an important thing to note is that they're inherently uh, at a high risk for instability, so these guys better have the pads on um, and have an alternate plan in place before you try to do anything. All right, great. Thanks, guys. <clears throat> Let's uh, shift gears now from the living patient with stable VTAC to the patient in cardiac arrest and refractory VTAC or VFib. We're going to look at two papers on this subject. First, let's tackle the ALPS trial. Now, ALPS uh, stands for amiodarone lidocaine or placebo uh, in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is a double-blind randomized control trial of patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and refractory VTAC or VFib. Patients eligible for the trial were either given amiodarone, lidocaine, or placebo, and the treatment was allocated in a one-to-one-to-one fashion. 
As their primary outcome, the authors were specifically looking at survival to hospital discharge and powered this study to detect a 6.3% difference in survival to discharge when comparing amiodarone to placebo. Now that meant they needed about 1,000 people in each arm of the study to meet 90% power, and they ended up getting it. 974 patients in the amio arm, 993 in the lido arm, and 1059 in the placebo arm. Now, before we get into what they found, let's talk about what we really think about the validity of these results, because you know, if the results aren't valid, does it really even matter what they are? Now, from a methodology standpoint, this trial was well conducted. The randomization process was concealed and complete. The effort undertaken from a blinding standpoint meant that neither EMS provider or in-hospital provider knew which treatment arm the patient was in. They had nearly complete data collection for both the pre-hospital treatment of the patients and in the hospital course. There are no issues with excessive numbers of patients being lost to follow-up, and all these are really good things and should strengthen our belief in the point estimate and effect that they observe in the trial. However, there was one thing that was not done entirely as we would expect given the nature of the trial. When the authors conducted the data analysis, they used a per-protocol analysis as opposed to an attention-to-treat analysis. So why would that matter to us? Well, the story of why it matter really starts with the underlying reasons as to why we randomized patients in the first place. We randomized patients to evenly distribute across treatment groups any known or unknown prognostic factors. We want to make it so that the only thing different from group to group is the treatment being administered. And an intention-to-treat analysis maintains those group allocations, maintains the prognostic balance that was set up by the randomization process. Now, when you conduct a per-protocol analysis, you lose some of that prognostic balance. Now, in this study, the authors offer really detailed descriptions of the patients in each treatment arm, and based on what we know of for prognostic factors for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you can say that these patients are actually pretty similar across the groups. And that should allay some of our concerns with the per-protocol analysis that was conducted. The other issue with per-protocol analysis is the optimistic estimation of effect size. You know, in any RCT, there can be crossover between treatment arms, and this crossover can become a problem when it's excessive. And any crossover or any event that leads to a patient who is randomized to a given treatment arm and didn't receive that treatment is going to diminish the apparent effectiveness of a drug seen, drug seen in the results. You know, because... It includes these crossover patients and patients who haven't received the treatment. An intention-to-treat analysis, by its nature, will provide the most conservative estimation of a treatment effect possible. Conversely, a per-protocol analysis, because it includes only the patients who receive the treatment, will provide the most optimistic treatment effect. Now, all that being said, based on the methodology and the way that this, was, this trial was conducted and the way that they analyzed the data, I think we can have pretty good faith in the estimate of effect that they observed. The results, in my opinion, have validity. So, what were the results? Well, there's a lot to look at this paper, so we'll constrain the discussion a bit. For the primary outcome, they found that survival to hospital discharge was 24.4% for amiodarone, 23.7% for lidocaine, and 21% for the placebo. Now, that's an absolute difference in survival of 3.2% for amiodarone as compared to placebo. Great, right? Well, remember that they powered this study to detect a 6.3% difference in survival, so that 3.2% difference they found not statistically significant. The confidence interval ranges from negative 0.4% to 7%, and the p-value is 0.08. Close, but no cigar. As you tease through the rest of the study and the secondary outcomes, you get the sense that the antiarrhythmics offer something that placebo doesn't. Patients have ROS quicker, make, uh, more patients make it to the hospital alive, but at the end of the day, strictly speaking, they don't make it out of the hospital alive more often than patients that received saline. So what do we make of this? Should we throw out all antiarrhythmics out of the EMS truck? 
Probably not. For starters, powering this trial for a 6.3% difference in survival to hospital discharge is kind of a a bold move. It seems a bit much to ask for a single drug to offer a 25% relative increase in survival in an already super sick patient population. A 6.3% absolute increase in survival to hospital discharge for a cardiac arrest is huge. Now, if you're an optimist, you can read this paper and say, it's clear there's evidence of a trend toward benefit not only for survival to admission to the hospital, but also improved survival to discharge. Now, if you're a pessimist, you'll say that strictly speaking, statistically speaking, there's no benefit in terms of survival discharge. And you repeat this exact same study again, and you'd be just as likely to have a negative 0.4% change in survival as you would to have a 7% increase in survival. Well, let's look at one other paper that deals with this sort of exact same question to help inform our opinion, a meta-analysis this time. Julie and, and, and I'll take us through this paper. We're going to talk about a new meta-analysis and systematic review that was published in the Inter- uh, International Journal of Cardiology back in July 2016. So what were people looking for in this paper? This paper describes kind of the usefulness of amiodarone in ventricular fibrillation or pulseless VTAC. Uh, the meta-analysis included 10 papers, six that were retrospective observational studies, and four that were prospective randomized controlled trials. And a total of about 50, uh, 300 patients were included in this study. Was there a control for the study or any controls? So the researchers initially looked for um, amiodarone versus lidocaine, amiodarone versus nifecalant, which is a class 3 antiarrhythmic agent used in Japan that's similar to amiodarone, and amiodarone versus placebo. But in the end, the researchers opted to group all the other interventions so uh, they would be creating more useful effect size. So basically amiodarone versus everything else. That's interesting. Any specific outcomes that they were trying to study? Absolutely. Um, There were five primary outcomes that were discussed in this paper. Um, They looked at, one, uh, return to spontaneous uh, circulation, two, survival to hospital admission for those patients that had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, Uh, three, 24-hour survival for those patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest, Uh, four, survival to hospital discharge, and five, neurologic outcome at the time of hospital discharge. Wow. That's like a lot of data to look through. How relevant do you think this is to ED physicians? It's a good question. We'll get to the relevance a little bit later. They did uh, sift through a whole bunch of data to come to the conclusions that they did in this paper. Um, let's kind of go over the primary results to fill in a little bit more detail. Sounds good. So the first primary outcome is probably the most important to us as emergency physicians. Uh, seven out of the ten papers reported um, ROSC as a primary outcome. Um, strangely, uh, after they'd done all the, the data and analyses, uh, administration of amiodarone was actually tended to decrease the odds of ROSC by 22%. This was not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.1, but it was strange that that relationship was uh, discussed. Uh, once they performed a sensitivity analysis, excluding studies with less than 150 patients and pooled um, odds ratios, there was not a decrease in ROSC. Uh, wait a minute. So... Which is it? Does it increase or decrease your chance of ROSC? That's the issue with the paper. When they included all of the data, you see a decrease in the chance of ROSC. But when you include only the larger prospective studies, there's an increase in the chance of ROSC. They completed um, a relevant test for interaction that did show a statistically significant increase um, with the chance of ROSC with those four um, RTCs. So they state that basically with the right statistics and relevance that amiodarone administration was correlated with ROSC. Yeah, it seems like it. So what's next? The survival hospital admission for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Yeah, six studies out of the ten describe this. After pooling the data, it appears that uh, there's a statistically significant improvement in survival to hospital admission with a p-value of uh, uh, 0.0, 0.26. Kind of um, what Dr. Hill was saying earlier, that uh, these interventions will help uh, you know, uh, survival all the way to hospital admission. 
Interesting. So that should be like a huge win for the EMS colleagues out there, right? Absolutely. They did subgroup analyses that were um, included statistically significant improvement in the patients with short-term CPR, early medication intervention, and initial shockable rhythms, all of which already been shown to increase survival to hospital admission. Right. That's definitely stuff that we had read about in other trials. Uh, how about these patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest? So only three out of the 10 studies reported this and did not show improvement to survival at 24 hours post-ROSC. No further subgroups were studied because there was too little data to complete this. And what about the inpatient friends? How was survival and hospital discharge? Not too great. Nine out of the 10 studies described survival to hospital discharge. Amiodarone did not appear to have any association with approved uh, survival to hospital discharge. and includes both in and um, out of hospital cardiac arrest. That's kind of what you would expect for a sick patient population. But let me ask you one thing. Is this even a relevant data point? So that's a very good point. To be honest with you, after discussing with a lot of our colleagues in Journal Club, we decided that this data point, while relevant to patients and families, doesn't seem to be really relevant to the medical community. The paper, you know, didn't discuss what happened during an inpatient, what the hospital course was like, how long the admissions were, what other comorbidities the patients were having. So... Although it's important, you know, to discuss uh, outcomes with families, uh, we're, we're not sure this is actually going to be useful for us in the medical community. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a lot to justify this outcome is related to the administration of amiodarone initially. Exactly. As a correlation does not mean causation, sadly. The last primary outcome on that note, neurologic outcomes? Yeah, so again, there seems to be no association with amiodarone administration and improved neurologic outcome. Again, little, there's only little data on this, so there were no subgroup analyses on that as well. This data point seems to be in a similar category as our last primary outcome. Uh, relevance for their patients and their families, but not really relevant to us in the medical community. I agree. It's difficult to tell if this is just a, uh, if this is just an associated correlation. Causation seems to be impossible to determine as there are too many confounding variables. What the uh, patient's baseline neurologic status is, did their hospital stay uh, become complicated with other medical issues such as stroke or delirium or withdrawal, we're not 100% sure. Uh, so just as kind of a summary point, administration of amiodarone in patients with, uh, you know, shock-resistant V-fib or pulses VTAC improved ROSC and admission uh, to hospital, um, but no improvement to discharge survival or neurologic outcomes. Yeah, well put. So it seems strange that some of the data actually pointed to worsening chance of ROSC initially. Yeah, actually, in the discussion section of this paper, they actually mentioned it. They uh, reported that when they are uh, restrained to just the randomized studies, just like the papers with a you know in- increased importance as a prospective, well thought out paper, uh, the administration of amiodarone tended to improve the survival to hospital discharge, kind of like we've spoken about before. Yeah, I'm not sure about the methods there, but what you're saying is that data from the stronger papers indicated better ROSC. Uh, than when they were grouped in with the core data. Exactly. So what does this mean for me as an EM resident? You know, are we going to use AMEO? I think this paper shouldn't be causing much change in clinical practice. It's a review of the data that included many data points. Um, we know with the ALIVE and the ARREST trials that amiodarone improves uh, rates of survival to hospital admission in patients with cardiac arrest. Because of these studies, I would say that we should continue the use of amiodarone in those cardiac arrest patients with uh, shock refractory VFib and pulses VTAC. Thanks for the great discussion. One interesting point that was brought up in Journal Club and that you all highlighted as well was the importance of in-hospital treatment for many of these outcomes. You know, the trials didn't necessarily prescribe what was to be done in hospital, so it certainly raises the question of practice variability and subsequent effects on patient survival. As was pointed out by Dr. Stetler in Journal Club, the other thing to think of more globally is that as in-hospital care of these patients improves over time, some of these pre-hospital treatments that don't seem to bear out better survival to discharge 
may one day actually lead to better survival to discharge since we already know that they get more people into the hospital alive. So there we have it. We're maybe not a lot better off than when we started, but certainly we're much more informed on the evidence, or lack thereof, of the effectiveness of antiarrhythmics for ventricular dysrhythmias. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to seeing you next time.